Good morning, everyone. Welcome to City on a Hill. My name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's good to have everyone here this morning and to be with you guys. And I was just encouraged um, singing with everyone this morning and thankful to be here. If you would, find your Bible and make your way to Acts chapter 19. That's where we're going to be this morning. We're especially going to focus, focus on verses 23 to 41. But I want to talk briefly uh, through the, the verses before that in chapter 19. And while in, in Acts overall, we've seen lots of examples of faithfulness, whether it was Paul or Apollos or Stephen or whoever it was, plenty of examples to emulate. The main kind of uh, people in our passage this morning, the main kind of thrust in, in our passage this morning is really the opposite of here's not someone to emulate, but here's an example of, of what not to do, or here's um, an example of something to be cautious of or to be warned of. And we're going to do that this morning by looking at two marks of idolatry. And the first one is going to be uh, the heart of idolatry, and the second is going to be the fruit of idolatry. Now, you might say, okay, Jeff, but why do I care? Well, I think two reasons. One, you, your goal in life, the meaning of life, hopefully this isn't a surprise to you, the meaning of life, the goal in life, of your life, is to glorify God. That's one, worship him, please him. The second is, you have to worship something, and it can only really be one thing. So if there are these idols in your life that's robbing you of opportunities to worship God. So um, even before we dive into that, though, this morning, I want to kind of set the scene of, of where we're at. Where is Paul at at this moment? Because he's, he's traveled quite a bit even since uh, Dave's message last week in Acts. But before we do that, would you pray with me as we ask for the Lord's help? Father, we are sustained live, not just by bread alone, but by everything that proceeds out of your mouth. Your word tells us this. Would you sustain us today by your word? I was reading uh, this week in my devotionals in Jonah, and his sermon was super simple. You can even say he didn't really seem like he wanted to preach it. There was no... Um, sexy hook at the beginning. It wasn't very interesting and uh, wasn't very winsome. And yet a whole city of 120,000 repented. And you, and you did a work through his imperfect words and his imperfect message. Father, would you do a similar work in our hearts this morning using my imperfect words? We ask this in the name of your son. Amen. Amen. So again, I want to kind of take us down memory lane to two weeks ago, and I want to do this because uh, I couldn't remember what we talked about two weeks ago, so I know some of us here this morning also can't remember what we talked about two weeks ago. Um, so uh, here's a map. This is Paul's second missionary journey, and if you remember last time I preached, we were way back in kind of the middle top. Paul was traveling from Troas to Neapolis to Philippi. Two weeks ago when uh, Dave was preaching, uh, Paul had made his way to uh, Athens, which is in kind of the, the middle left there. And that was uh, Acts 17. And if you remember, that was where they had the temple to the unknown God and where Paul was basically saying, hey, you have this kind of unknown God you're looking out for just in case you're missing one. Let me tell you about who that is. Let me tell you about that God. 
And then last week in Acts 18, Paul came to Corinth. So that's just southwest of, of Athens on the map there. And he spends about a year and a half there. He meets up with Priscilla and Aquila, the tent-making buddies. And so they're tent-making. They're doing ministry there together for some time. On the end of chapter 18, we get a summary, kind of the end of Paul's second missionary journey, landing in Antioch of Syria. So literally there's uh, five, six, seven cities uh, that Paul has traveled to since last week. And he ends up in the easternmost Antioch, not to be confused with the Antioch that's a little bit in the north there in Galatia. That takes us to Paul's third missionary journey. So again, since last week, he's finished up his second missionary journey, early ended it, was in Antioch, and has since started his third missionary journey. You can see there he started in Antioch and hit several cities that he's already visited, strengthening the churches there, until he ends up in Ephesus for the second time. And that's where we are in Acts 19. We're back in Ephesus where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila, and this time Paul is going to stay a couple of years. So if you want to glance down now at Acts chapter 19, verse 1, I want to talk about verses 1 through 7 real quick here. We have this story of Paul encounters 12 disciples, not the 12 disciples of Jesus, but some 12 disciples that were there in the city. And it seems like they had some teaching of kind of John the Baptist, of repentance, but they are missing some key information about Jesus. So naturally, uh, Paul tells them, and they get saved and receive the Holy Spirit, um, and he continues to preach the gospel, and it's great. Then we come to verses 11 through 20. And some Jewish exorcists, these sons of Sceva, get this idea of, hey, I see Paul. He, in the name of Jesus, is able to cast demons out of people pretty successfully. Why don't I try that? And so they say, in the name of this Jesus that Paul is using, uh, come out. And these, so these seven, these seven sons of Sceva try it, and the demon in response is kind of like making fun of them, right? Look at verse 15. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you, right? In other words, you have no authority. And so what happens? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And as a result of this, in the next couple of verses, there's many who repent and become believers, who formally practiced magic. I'm in verse 18. Also, many of those who are now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silvers. Silver, excuse me. Burning these scrolls wasn't just a way of removing temptation for them not to go back to their old ways of living. But it's also an outward sign of them saying, I trust God to deliver me from trouble and supply my needs. And it also represents how much that repentance, how much that becoming a believer cost them. 
We don't know how much exactly 50,000 pieces of silver was, other than it was a huge sum of money. And they were kind of collectively willing to sacrifice a huge amount of wealth to repent and to move on from that idol they had of this kind of magic witchcraft. They're the last kind of positive example we'll hear about this morning, how they handled being confronted with their idol, how they repented. The next group, the group in our main passage this morning, did not handle it quite as well. So now I want to pick up and start reading in verse 23, and then I'll give you the point. About that time, there was a major disturbance about the way. And you can think of the way at this point as just Christianity. For a person named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, provided a great deal of business for the craftsmen. When he had assembled them, as well as the workers engaged in this type of business, he said, men, you know that our prosperity is derived from this business. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this man Paul has persuaded and misled a considerable number of people by saying that gods made by hand are not gods. Not only do we run a risk that our business may be discredited, but also that the temple of the great goddess of Artemis may be despised and her magnificence come to the verge of ruin, the very one all of Asia and the world worship. And it's here in, in Demetrius' Demetrius's and the craftsman's response that we get our first mark of idolatry, the heart of idolatry, the heart or the desires of idolatry. So we hear about this guy, Demetrius, who makes silver shrines for Artemis. And if you don't know, Artemis is a, a Greek goddess. She's the Greek goddess of the moon, of, of young maidens, of childbirth, of the hunt, and several other things. It was one of the most kind of well-respected, worshipped deities in kind of Greek culture at that time. In Ephesus, there was an enormous temple to Artemis. There was a, a meteor that had come down at some point, and they had associated that with Artemis and built this huge temple to kind of honor and venerate her in this place. And that temple was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. So if you don't know, in like 200 BC, they compiled this list of like seven kind of greatest wonders. These are the things you absolutely must see, kind of tourism. These are the places you must go. Um, this temple to Artemis was one of them. Long story short, Artemis was a big deal in Ephesus at the time. But before we go on talking about uh, Demetrius and friends. I want to give us one passage just to kind of uh, frame our discussion this morning. That's in Luke chapter 6. The kind of four or five other places I'm going to go in the Bible will be on the screen. So if you just want to stay in Acts 19, that would be fine. So again, Luke, Luke 6, 43. A good tree doesn't produce bad fruit. On the other hand, a bad tree doesn't produce good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. Figs aren't gathered from thorn bushes or grapes picked from a bramble bush. A good person produces good out of the good stored up in his heart. An evil person produces evil out of the evil stored up in his heart. For his mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. In other words, our heart, our desires dictate the actions that uh, come out of it. 
actions can be good or appear good on the outside, but flow from wrong actions. So for instance, I could uh, have desired to be a pastor because I really, really like the sound of my own voice. And I really, really think I got some good ideas and I want everyone to listen to me. That isn't why I became a pastor. Actually, I didn't love public speaking when I was in school. And so when I was an undergrad thinking about becoming a pastor, I was like, nah. Because I took that as a sign of like, well, God would equip me in these ways if, if he wanted to call me to ministry. And here I am. So you know how that turned out for me. But you could, being a pastor is a good thing, right? But if you're doing it because you want a bunch of people to listen to you or you want respect or all these other things, right, all of a sudden it becomes a bad thing. And so when I'm asking myself this question of, is this thing, is this person an idol? One of the things I'm asking myself is, okay, what is the action and what is the heart motive? What is the desire that that action is flowing from? So let's kind of apply that to Demetrius now in in our passage this morning. Is he worshiping an idol? And in one sense, of course, that's a silly question. They have the largest temple to Artemis in, in kind of the world. They, they're all about Artemis. So in that sense, it's kind of silly because, of course, they're worshiping an idol. But is his primary concern in this passage really Artemis? Like Artemis getting the glory she deserves, the worship she deserves, or is it something else? And what I would say to you this morning is that I don't think it is. I think he's more concerned about uh, business, money, wealth, more than he is about Artemis' glory. Look at verse 25. It says, from this business, we have our wealth. And then Paul says, gods aren't um, made by hand. Those aren't gods. That's our livelihood that's being threatened here. Verse 27, our trade may come into disrepute. Then there's this bit about the goddess Artemis that may be counted as nothing. And I, I'm kind of taking that as uh, this temple of Artemis was big, big tourism spot for the city. If no one worships Artemis anymore, they're not going to come and they're not going to buy their um, goods that they're making as the silversmith. And I think in these things, these details Luke left for us in the book of Acts, I think we get a glimpse into their heart. Seems what they're primarily afraid of, what they're primarily concerned about, is not the Artemis worship itself, but their business and the wealth it brings them. That's their heart of idolatry. Not so much Artemis herself, but money, and everything with it money can bring. Whether it's, you know, I don't have Demetrius here, I can't ask him, like, hey, what's valuable to you about money, right? But it could be a lot of things, right? Security, ease, comfort, power, influence, pleasure. Friends, we need to be careful not to make money our goal. Not to make money the object of our worship, but instead worship the one true God. And some of us maybe think like, ah, like money's not not an issue for me, or I I don't have any, so how could it become my idol? (laughs) But it's a real danger for us, like, In our culture, in the world around us, the pursuit seems to always come back to money or success or these things along that line. 
Jesus knew it would be a temptation for his followers. He talked about it specifically in the book of Matthew. He says this, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. It was so much of a concern that Paul talked about it to Timothy in his first letter to him. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Our culture props up money, the idols of our day, whether it is being well-known or being an influencer or comfort or ease. Like there are these great things that's gonna bring us the joy we're craving. This is what's gonna make me happy. This is what's going to fulfill me. And what ultimately Paul is telling us, what he was telling Timothy, is that it just brings pain. When that becomes the number one thing in your life, when that takes the place of God in whatever place that is, that's not going to find happiness, you're going to find pain. I'll give you an example. Has anyone been following the Johnny Depp trial, either on news or on Facebook or YouTube or whatever? I got a lot of head nods, that's good. That, that tells me how much I need to like tell you. But so basically, Johnny Depp, you know, Pirates of the Caribbean guy, um, he sued his ex-wife, Amber Heard, who's also an actress. Uh, she sued him back. And so now this kind of long drawn out uh, lawsuit has kind of come out and it's being streamed on YouTube and I don't really know how that works. Uh, in the name of sermon prep, and now all of a sudden I'm an expert in law, and, and in this trial, so I'm, I'm ready for the bar. Uh, but the point is, uh, can Johnny and Amber combined, our net worth is about $160 million, okay? So we're, we're talking serious cash here. And in the midst of the trial, a lot of kind of crazy things have come out, but uh, no matter whose kind of side you're on or, or where you're at about who's more at fault or whatever, What's very obvious is, is that they lived a lifestyle of, of substance abuse, regular substance abuse, and mutually abusing one another, either uh, emotionally or physically. Neither of them are, are innocent from that. And again, while we could have a very interesting discussion about your perspective on the whole thing, my point in bringing it up in, is this. Here you have two people, again, $160 million, they're, they're influential, they're talented, they're famous, they're um, well-liked by people in general. Johnny Depp, especially his like, really devoted fans, are really devoted. When you see and you read about what's going on in kind of their private life is, is all of a sudden kind of being exposed to the world, do they seem happy? After all that they have, all these things that were continually trying to, or, or, or tempted to go after, they have all these things, which I don't even know what I would do with $160 million, right? Like, more money than I could possibly think to know what to do with. Are they happy? And of course, the resounding answer is like, no. No, when you read about it or see it or whatever, it more makes you think, I'm doing pretty good, right? It's, it's one of those like, feel-good moments of like, yes, I'm not doing too bad, right? They, they have all these things going on for them, and yet they aren't happy. They're 
They're so far from that. In other words, did, did any of those things, the, the money or the power or the influence or any of these things that promised to make them happy, did it deliver? And of course, the answer is no. So Demetrius from this morning's passage, Johnny Depp in our current events, all of these things serve as a warning for us. Let's not be deceived by idols, by sin, that promises one thing, I'm going to, whatever that thing you're after, whether it is, I'm going to make you happy, or I'm, I'm going to bring you peace that you're so looking after, it'll give you a little taste, right? There'll be like a little taste of pleasure or peace or whatever that is, but never enough to get to the place of contentment. And it will always leave you wanting more. Put it another way, when we pursue an idol or when we sin, inevitably it comes back to that thing is so tempting for us or we're so long after it because we genuinely believe it can provide something that we want. It's tempting to us because we genuinely believe it will provide something to us that we want, right? That explains the, the things you are tempted, at, tempted to want and all the things you're not tempted by. So probably most of us here aren't tempted to like shoplift or something like that. Why is that? Because we don't perceive that it will give us what we want. Now, kind of circling back to our passage, I want to take it from a different angle. Did Demetrius and the craftsmen have mixed motives? Probably. Again, he's not here, so I can't really ask him. Do we oftentimes have mixed motives? Definitely, right? I can see that in my own life. We've talked about this before. The heart is deceitful. It's an idol factory. There's, there's probably an element in, in Demetrius' life of genuine Artemis worship. There's probably an element in our life, in many of the things we do, of some sort of selfish motive. And I don't really care much about Demetrius. He had a shot, right? I bring this up, and we're talking about this for you guys and for your heart. And that is, where do you see mixed motives in yourself and the things you do? I want to illustrate this by something we've talked about before when we've talked about the importance of motives when you're doing the right thing, about kind of honoring a loved one on a special day. Here it is kind of come up again. Mother's Day was last Sunday. If you didn't know that already, it's a little late. We're at kind of like the beg for forgiveness part of Mother's Day now, if that was the camp you're in. Mother's Day was last week. My wife and I um, have a, a daughter. She's just over a year old now. So uh, I could have come home last Sunday with flowers and chocolate and said, Michelle, I got you these because you've, you've gone through the process of, of birthing a child now. And uh, as a husband, it's my duty to honor you in this way. And so uh, here you go. That wouldn't go over super well, right? Like if the, if the motives weren't there, hopefully we're not uh, foolish enough to say it if that's where you were at, guys. Um, similarly, if I came home last week with the flowers and chocolate and all that, and I said, Michelle, I want to kind of, I love you and I want to honor you and what you, you do for our family and, 
especially for Charity, our daughter. And so I got you these, these flowers and chocolates and, and everything else we did that day. But I also, I didn't want you to be mad at me if I didn't do anything, and that was part of it too. That's kind of like, uh, I don't know. It seems a little better. Maybe it depends on, on the mom. Like maybe some moms would be like, oh, that's fine. <laughs> right, but mixed motives, what do we do with that? That's really the, the question why I bring it up. What do we do with that when, when our motives are mixed like that? Again, probably not a smart move to, to articulate that out loud to, to mom or to your wife. But I tell you what we don't do. We don't just say, well, I can't get my heart in the right place, so I just won't do anything. Right? How would have that gone over on Sunday? So I come home after church. Michelle's there waiting for me. Walk in with nothing. She's kind of like, are we doing something later? Or like, what's going on here? <laughs> and so I kind of see her looking, and so I, I go up to her and say, Michelle, I, uh, part of me wanted to honor you. Part of me was just afraid you'd get mad at me if I didn't. And I couldn't get my heart in the right spot, so I just didn't. I didn't get you anything. Now, out of all those scenarios, which one would have gone the worst, right? That one definitely would have been uh, the worst, right? So if we don't do that with our spouses or our moms, let's not do that in the other areas of our life too. What do I mean by that? We can have all sorts of mixed motives about doing good things, right? Like reading your Bible or praying or coming to church on Sunday morning or, or serving or being in a small group or whatever it is. Oftentimes we have mixed feelings about those things. And do we say... Well, I didn't feel joy after reading my Bible, so I'm just going to stop reading my Bible. Or I'm pretty tired. I feel tired, so I'm not going to uh, go to small group. Instead, we should do what we know is right, what we know would please God in spite of our feelings and wait for our feelings to catch up. Otherwise, what becomes our authority in that moment or in that decision. I don't think that's a question we ask ourselves very often, what's my authority in this moment? And I would challenge you the next time you're kind of wrestling or through something or or challenged by something or trying to think through something, what is my authority in this moment? Because my heart naturally goes toward, I'm gonna pick whatever's easiest. Now that's me, you could have your own thing. But my heart naturally goes toward, I'm gonna pick uh, whatever is easiest for me. We know what our authority should be, God and his word, but our hearts naturally turn toward these other things. So let's make it super practical now. And this was the part of the message that the, the part of me that wants to make decisions based on ease was like, hey, just skip that, Jeff. Like, you don't need to talk about it. Let's make this super practical. And when I was preparing for this sermon, this was the point where I was like, Jesus, help me to communicate my heart um, to the congregation, to you guys, accurately. On this past Tuesday night, we all had a choice of what to do with our Tuesday evening. There were literally infinite number of combinations of different things you could do on Tuesday evening. You could go rob a bank. You could go to bed at 7 p.m., which sounds really good. Um, You could stay home and watch a movie. You could uh, honor some other commitment you had. 
one of those of, of the infinite options you had, one of those options was the prayer night here at church. And it was really good. We got to um, pray together. I got to pray about a couple things for me. We got to pray for the church. We got to pray for the community. And I got to, to go before our Heavenly Father with my brothers and sisters in Christ. And it was just a really good, encouraging time for me and for us that were there. My, my way I want to challenge you guys today is not were you there or not, or what were you doing on Tuesday. That's not my heart. Uh, if, if you were kind of doing the wrong thing or robbing a bank or whatever it is, I'm, the spirit is gonna, I'm trusting the spirit is going to go and convict you of, hey, you made the wrong choice. My emphasis this morning and, and why I bring this up is, is not... You, you weren't there and you should be there, or whatever you're doing isn't prayer night, so go to prayer night. That's not it at all. My heart is, when you are making that decision of, this is what I'm going to do with my Tuesday evening, what were you primarily concerned about? In other words, did you make that decision, whether you honored a different commitment, whether you stayed home and take care of your kids, whether you stayed home and rested, whether you came to prayer night, did you make that decision based on this conviction that this is what I believe would please God most in this moment? Or this is what I believe, for me, what I can do in this moment that would best glorify God? Or was it something else, like a feeling, or what was easiest, or something like that? Right, because you could come to prayer night, and you could do it out of a heart of, maybe my kind of guiding principle is, Whatever makes me look like the best person. That's not the right motive, but it would have led me come to prayer night. Similarly, you could, and I genuinely believe this, you could genuinely choose to stay home and rest because you believe that's what would glorify God the most with your Tuesday evening. And I'm totally on board for that. My question is whether you were honoring a different commitment, whether you were at home resting, whether you're here at the prayer night, when you made that choice, was it because that's what you thought would please God, or was it something else? And my, my fear or my concern for us is that we're not used to thinking this way. Like we would say God is authority, but we're not used to thinking uh, or making decisions in the light of what would please God the most in this moment. And because we're not doing that, we're missing out on all of the fruit that comes with a life-focused on God. We'll talk about it more later, but the, the love and the joy and the peace that comes with that and saying, I was faithful in this, whatever it was, and that's how I made my decision. My, my heart is that we missed out on that. Or we're, we're missing out on making our decisions that way instead of based on some other criteria. So there it is, pastoral moment over. I've, I've said it. Uh, the big kind of takeaway, again, was how do I make decisions? Like, what, what, do I, what am I thinking about? What am I thinking through? What am I weighing when I'm making my decisions or choosing how to use my time? The point kind of summary is this. Our heart, our motives are very important, and we need to be carefully watching over and considering where our own heart is at and constantly aligning it with God's. We might 
be inclined to selfishness or, or mixed motives and all these other things. Ultimately, if you are choosing to do what you think pleases God in that moment, you can know you're on the right track. So even though we have kind of this old jumble of motives probably going on, ultimately, if you choose to do what you think, what you're convicted to think will please God the most, you're on the right track. That's the first mark of idolatry, a uh, heart of idolatry or desires of idolatry. That's one way you might tell, but again, you might say, well, it's, it's really hard sometimes to know what I'm wanting in a moment or what are my desires or, or what I'm after. And remember back to our Luke passage, a tree is known by its fruit. Your desires are known by the fruit, and that's the second mark of idolatry, the fruit of idolatry. The second mark of idolatry is the fruit of idolatry. We're going to pick back up in Acts, starting in verse 28. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd, but when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you have to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, there are proconsuls, let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly, for we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. And here we, we get a glimpse again, we're provided details of the fruit Demetrius and the craftsmen's idolatry has produced. So what happens? So they make this, this big fuss, they're stirring up the people, and, and sort of this uh, riot starts to form. A couple of Paul's uh, companions get cut up into it all. Paul wants to go out and talk to them, and all the disciples and friends are like, hey man, Paul, like, no, not this time. And Paul's up there like, oh, look, a big, like, big crowd of people, I'm going to tell them about Jesus. But there's all sorts of confusion. People are getting caught up in the excitement. They're kind of in this assembly and in this crowd, and some don't even know why. And this carries on for a couple of hours until the uh, town clerk comes and addresses the assembly. Now, when I uh, hear town clerk, what I imagine in my mind is if you go into like town hall, that the front desk, there's a secretary there, and that's the town clerk that's asking you if you have an appointment. That's not what this is. 
The town clerk would have been one of the highest officials in the city at the time and would have had significant sway over the people and the city. And he comes in and basically says, is, is Artemis worship really, really what's going on here? Is, is really the issue here? Do we really think that this is going to eliminate people worshiping Artemis? Demetrius, craftsman, you really need to kind of check yourselves. And if you have an issue, uh, you need to take it to court. And in verse 40, what he's essentially saying is, hey, this city is under the authority of Rome, and we have a certain um, amount of leeway or freedom in how we run Ephesus. If a city is charged with rioting, they could lose the respect of kind of the Roman officials over them. Guilds like the craftsmen or the silversmith could lose uh, their, their kind of rights and be disbanded. City officials like the clerk could be punished. And a city could even lose its freedom. In other words, Rome could come in and say, hey, we gave you this much leash, um, and this was the result of it, rioting, and so we need to come in with a heavy hand and establish control. So overall, not great, right? We're thinking about the fruit of what has their idolatry brought them. Seems like not great. Verse 28, they were enraged, so, so anger. Verse 29, 32, the city was filled with confusion, Verses 33 through 34, they've lost the ability to rationally discuss or hear out people's perspectives. In verse 40, we were just talking about, ultimately they could have done their guild, their city, great harm by their response. So what's one way? I know that it was an idol because I can see the fruit of what came out of there desires for wealth. Look at uh, Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. It'll be on the screen. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, maybe some enmity, some strife, some jealousy, definitely some fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And it's not saying that these actions are so bad that it disqualifies you from heaven or something like that. It's saying the heart that leads to these sorts of actions, if that's your, your mode of operating, if that's your authority and not God, that's what will um, disqualify you from inheriting the kingdom of God. And that's true for us too. In other words, these are Mark's for them, that they were struggling with an idol, and it's still true for us today, that these are the types of things that we need to be looking out for in our own lives. What fruit are my desires producing? What fruit am I producing from my desires? Think about another way. You could ask yourself a couple questions. Am I willing to sin to get this thing, whatever it is? Am I willing to sin to get it? Or am I willing to sin if I don't get it? You might say, Jeff, I think you've you mentioned that to us before, and I have, uh, but I, I would guess if I asked many of you, 
how, would you, how might you tell if something was a, is an idol that you wouldn't be able to tell it back to me? And I want us as a congregation to get to the point, if, if I found you asleep, that I could ask you this question, how do you find an idol, that your subconscious would just speak it to me. I'm, am I willing to sin to get it? Am I willing to sin to not get it? This is uh, modeled in, in our home every day. Um, our daughter Charity has a blanket idol. It's very significant. Uh, she, probably her favorite thing in life right now is if you throw the blanket over her head and she runs around the house like a ghost, like bumping into stuff because she can't see. Obviously, she doesn't know what a ghost is, but for us. <laughs> and if you, don't, uh, if, if you don't get that blanket on her fast enough or if you're doing something and, and uh, Michelle and I don't put the blanket on her, she loses it, right? Talk about fits of anger, right? She's grabbing toys and throwing them on the ground and things like that. I see very clearly in her heart, she is willing to sin if she doesn't get the blanket on her head so she can run around like a ghost. That's kind of a silly example. And our, our uh, temper tantrums mature as we mature, but I would say we are still prone to those same sorts of willing to sin if I don't get it. The craftsmen in our passage seem to be in the camp of, uh, I'm, I'm afraid that this is going to take away our business and our wealth, and so in order to do that, I'm going to stir up this kind of riot or this assembly. I'm willing to riot and stir up the people to get what I want or to maintain what I want. On the flip side, what sorts of fruit would righteous actions produce? The next couple of verses in Galatians tell us. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So when you're sitting here examining your own heart, and I, I hope you are examining your life, examining uh, your heart and your actions, one thing you can be doing is looking at that fruit it produces and saying, is it producing this selfish ambition is it producing some of these other things like fits of anger? Or is it producing like faithfulness and love and joy and peace? These are the marks we're looking out for. Hopefully this isn't news to anyone, but all of us in some way and some form have idols in our life. The church, our church, City on a Hill, we're made up of a group of people who, isn't, who aren't. I was basically a good person, and I just needed a little bit of help getting over the finish line, and that little bit of help was Jesus. No, it's, uh, we have wicked hearts that are naturally selfish, that on our best days come up with mixed motives, and love to go after things like ease and comfort rather than pleasing God in our actions. And God's standard for us is always right actions with 100% selfless, God-centered motives. And hopefully when you hear that, you don't think, I'm doing pretty good at that. Hopefully you hear that and you think, I couldn't in 100 lifetimes get myself to that place. And when you were saved and you had that moment, you acknowledged that fact. Like, I couldn't do this on my own. I need Jesus for my justification. And as a, a parent, the child, spouse, employee, friend, dare I even say it as a member attender of this church, 
As a follower of Jesus Christ, we need to constantly be on the lookout for idols in those relationships, in those different roles we have in our life. And that task and that job is for believers in Jesus Christ. But we can't even begin to root out idols in our life if we haven't taken that step. It's not possible. We can't, we can't even begin to want to please God over ourselves in some way uh, if we haven't received the Holy Spirit. And again, it's not about um, money is evil or influence is evil or anything like that. The question is, what's, what's primary in your life? What is my primary focus and primary goal? And if you want that, if you want to have this Christ-centered life, which is ultimately freedom from enslavement to your desires. We all worship something. The question is, what are you going to worship? And if you want freedom from worshiping your desires or self or any of these other things, I invite you this morning to put your faith and trust in Jesus. The truth of it is, without his sacrifice on the cross for us, we can't possibly do this, begin to want Christ, begin to justify ourselves before God. And when you do that, when you acknowledge that he and not you is Lord of your life, that's when you're accessing that fruit of the spirit that we were just talking about before. What we would all say we truly want. We don't want money or these other idols or these sins in of, for things in of themselves. We want them because we want to be happy. We want to be content. We want to have peace. And true contentment and lasting peace is found in this right relationship with Christ and with God. And that's my prayer for us this morning, that we would seek after those things, not in the things of this world, but in our relationship with God. Let's pray. Father, we admit and confess that in each of our lives, we are not entirely selfless. And we are not entirely focused on you. And like I was even mentioning in my message, I personally naturally am inclined to just pick whatever is easiest for me. Pray that you would convict us um, of ways, of idols in our lives that we're blind to. Would you um, grow us in those areas? Would you help realign our hearts to you, help us to desire, first and foremost, above everything, to please you, and that all these other things would be in the right place, secondary to you, and in doing so, reap that love and joy and peace that we all desperately long for, that only you can provide. We ask and pray all these things in the name of your Son. Amen.